Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuhu. Ramadan Mubarak to you and yours. This Ramadan, as we all gather to share a meal with our loved ones, we need to remember those in Gaza who are also gathering to share a meal with so many who aren't there that were just there a year ago. Since October the 7th, the Human Development Fund has assisted over 200,000 people in Gaza, providing them with essential aid, such as food baskets, water, hot meals, winter items, shelter, hygiene kits, and baby formula. Your generous contributions are making a significant impact, especially in Rafah. Let's sustain this momentum and continue providing crucial support during this sacred and blessed month. Please visit hdfund.org slash qalam. That's hdfund.org slash qalam, Q-A-L-A-M, to learn more about our global reach this Ramadan and choose where you'd like to direct your support during this blessed month. May Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala make this month a time of mercy, solace, acceptance, and triumph for the ummah of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And may Allah continue to use all of us as a means and never replace us. Ameen, Ya Rabbil Alameen. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi everybody and welcome home. For the past few years, we've always started our programs with this statement and we mean it because community is a place that we all should call home a place that gives us peace, a place that gives us tranquility, and a place that we know is going to be there. When Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala describes faith in the Qur'an, He mentions stability as being a requirement for faith to grow. Asluha thabit wa far'uha fissama' That its roots are firm and its branches grow to the sky. If we don't have stability, if we don't have permanence, if we don't know that something is going to be there for us, then our faith won't be able to grow. This is why when the Prophet ﷺ came to Medina and made the migration, the Hijrah with his companions, at that moment, when they arrived at their new permanent home, he said the beautiful phrase, Afshus Salam, spread peace. Why? Because peace can be attained now that we have a place that we can call home. For the past five years, Roots has been able to be a part of so many people's lives, Alhamdulillah, by the grace of Allah. And we're so honored to have that be a part of our legacy. But we've been doing it in temporary spaces. We've been doing it in hotel banquet halls, in masjid side rooms, in people's living rooms at home, and in temporary lease spaces where when we were signing the lease, we knew that this was not going to be there forever. But that can change. By the favor of Allah, with our foundational organization, Qalam, we've been able to find this beautiful property here in Carrollton, Texas, that will be the permanent location and facility for the Roots community space. A place where everybody can feel that tranquility and have that growth of faith that Allah Ta'ala tells us about. We need your help to close on this property. We need you to generously donate and contribute whatever you can, adding your name to this list of people that will help build and construct a permanent home for us to build the model community following the example of the Prophet Muhammad in Medina. Help us make this dream a reality. Visit rootsdfw.org slash home. Welcome home everybody. How's everyone? Listen, uh, I know that if you're a Mavs fan, last night was tough. It's, just, it's not going to get easier. All right, you just, you know, sometimes you just have to accept reality as it is. And uh, it just makes the end easier. All right, so if you're a Mavs fan, hype them. It'll be okay. I'll always be here to hug you, inshallah, after the game. Okay. <laughs>
welcome back to Heartwork, uh, where we're going through one of the milestone chapters in the Quran, Surah Al-Kahf. It's the 18th chapter in the Quran, and it's one of the milestone chapters because there's a set of virtues about Surah Al-Kahf that are specific to the Surah. Uh, it is one of those chapters that the Muslim, uh, the individual, the believer should be very familiar with. Uh, even if not to the level of like memorization uh, or you know rote memorization, but the stories and the themes within the surah are so full of just absolute um, you know substance for the heart of the believer that these stories are necessary, uh, the necessary literature for everybody to have spiritually for their heart to be uh, in a good place, and this is why the Muslim is recommended to recite. Surah Al-Kahf every Friday, not just for the barakah of it, not for the blessing of reciting it, but because of what it contains, okay? So we did the uh, introduction, then we did a little bit, we're going to finish today, the uh, kind of like the preface that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala gives uh, in Surah Al-Kahf, and then we're going to start into the first story, uh, which are the companions of the cave, and kind of give a background to that story a little bit before we jump into the actual passage in the Qur'an. So where we left off last week was we started talking about this idea uh, that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a purpose for this book, that the Qur'an is driven by something. Uh, it's meant to deliver something to every reader. All right? It's not just a, a book of, you know, that's left up to the reader. No, the, the Qur'an has a directive. It actually has an intention. What is the directive of the Qur'an? What's the intention of the Qur'an? Why was the Qur'an sent? Yeah, very good, as a guidance. So all the other things in the Qur'an that you see, and as much as people might talk about different elements of the Qur'an, like science being in the Qur'an, or history, or if there's like a numerical miracle, like all these other miracles, I don't necessarily want to sit here and like confirm or go through or deny any of them. But that's not the function of the Qur'an, right? Whether or not the Qur'an, uh, you know, delivers scientifically uh, impossible information that there's no way the Prophet could have known, that's a separate conversation, right? And I'm not saying that it's pointless, I'm just saying that it's secondary. Primary, the goal of the Qur'an is to deliver guidance, to deliver guidance in the way that is best suited. So what that means is that when you look at the Qur'an, when you're reading through it, it's not going to read like a history book, even when you're going over a story of history. A history book is going to have names, dates, places. It's going to be, you know, oriented chronologically. You're going to be looking through. The, the Quran might skip around here and there. Why? Because going through chronologically would distract from the function of guidance. If, if the point of guidance in that moment is to talk about one of the stories of Musa, salam, it's not going to go through the whole thing over and over again. It's just going to pick that one part. Allah Ta'ala is going to deliver that one part. Why? Because that's the essential piece for that point of guidance. So, we have something similar here. Allah Subhanahu Wa Ta'ala is going to introduce a few pieces. Oopsies, sorry, I keep forgetting I have long legs. Um, Allah Ta'ala is going to introduce a few pieces of guidance. However, they're not going to be, you know, fully detailed. And not everything is going to be disclosed, but that's not any indication of weakness on behalf of the message. It's an indication of focus and of direction, of purpose. So we have here verse number five, which we ended on last time, which is the idea of speaking without guidance. So what were the things that were being said 
without guidance. Well, one of the things, this idea that Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala has a, a child or that he you know, gave birth or that he had an offspring of some sort. These are claims that were made by different people of the past. Now, we know that this surah was Meccan, so this isn't talking even necessarily about the people of the book. This is talking about the pagan religions that believe that God, all the idols they worshipped were God's daughters, or that God, some of them believe that angels were God's daughters. They had these theories, right, speculations that were not accurate. They weren't based on anything factual. They were just conjecture. People just kind of came up with them. And the reason why Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala takes a moment here, a couple verses to address this, is because he wants us to walk away, one of the reasons why, is because he wants us to walk away with a deep appreciation for what knowledge is and why knowledge is so important. That in any scenario, if someone doesn't have knowledge, we don't take anything from what they say. If someone does not know what they're talking about, we don't put any stock in whatever it is that that person says. And it should be the same when it comes to religion. When it comes to faith, if a person doesn't have the, the requisite knowledge or training within the religious sciences, right? Quran, tafsir, hadith, etc. Then when a person speaks on behalf of Allah, it's very, very important for us to, to realize and connect that, you know what? While even the intention might be good, it's not necessarily something that I should put, invest my entire belief into. Because why? Because training is necessary, it's requisite. So Allah Ta'ala here, he addresses this point, he says, These people are making this claim religiously, but they don't have knowledge. And this is something that's very destructive. We kind of alluded to it last time. I didn't want to get in the religion versus culture debate, but now I do. No, I don't, I'm just joking. Right? A lot of times claims made on behalf of religion that are founded and their origin is coming from culture. Right? Anyone here have any? Are we too scared to talk about them? <laughs> the group therapy session, okay? There are some where there is like a tangential relationship to religion. Like very brief. And even then it's manipulated and twisted and again to kind of fit the, the cultural imperative, right? Whatever that, that, that culture wants. But the point that I'm trying to make is that it's very damaging. When people grow up for, you know, two, three decades and then they go and sit with a scholar or they attend a class or something and that sheikh or sheikha says, yeah, you know, this point or this belief or this whatever is not actually accurate Islamically. It's not, it's not actually what Islam says. If you look at the sources, if you look at what the scholars have said for 1400 years, not accurate. And that person, it's almost like a, a revelation, like a rebirth. Like, are you serious? What my grandma told me wasn't true? You know, all those years? Uh, there's a few, man. What are some of them? I forgot. There's a few that I, oh, Saad, here we go. Oh yeah, okay, that was the easy one, thank you. I was scared that you were going to bring up something that actually was true and I had to, you know, hurt everyone's feelings. Okay, yeah, so sometimes like some of the wedding festivity stuff, uh, it's derived from other cultural practices, which in and of themselves are not evil, some maybe, but in and of themselves some of them are not, but still, to use that and say, well, you know, in Islam it's better this way. Actually, there's a really funny story that I can share with you. Um, so many of you are aware of, of this, what, what the difference between uh, like nikah and an engagement is, right? You guys aware of this? Okay, nikah means what? Marriage. Marriage. Very good, excellent. Okay, good. All right, engagement is batbaki, you know, khutbah, like there's many different forms of engagement. Okay, fatiha, this and this and this. Uh, that's another one that has, anyways. Uh, so all of these are not nikah, okay? Nikah is a, is a shari'i term. It's a term that's brought up in the sharia that 
indicates that these two people are married. And being married, it means that between them there are responsibilities, there are rights, and there are privileges that are now uh, given to these two individuals as a unit, as a couple. Okay, that's what nikah means. So, what happens is, you know, there is traditionally, when there comes to nikah, the requirement is very vague. When, it, when the, the, the requirement for nikah is specific, but the requirement for what happens after is very vague. In that, there should be something called a walima, which literally just means a party to feed people. And there should be, uh, in the majority of scholars, they say a'lan, which means announcement. So no nikah should be done like in secret. Like people should not not know. You shouldn't just, you know, if someone says, let's get married, but don't tell anybody. That's unfortunately not part of the requirement of, of what we would consider to be traditionally nikah. And then also there should be some form of feeding, like a party of festivity. Now, it doesn't have to be a thousand people. It doesn't have to be 500. It could literally be, hey, I'm going to, it could be like roots, like literally, hey, show up chicken salad sandwiches. Welcome to my walima. Like, you know, I mean, no one should take claim that this is their walima though, right? Besides it being super broke. But point being is that there, there is no Islamic imperative to have this much money spent or this many people fed. It's left open. Why? Because this is something that's going to fall on different, you know, shoulders across time and people are going to have to figure it out based on their circumstances. So if, if the Prophet said you must feed 500 people, like that might be very difficult for certain people, okay, uh, to do. And so it was left open, right? Now, the, the, the question or the issue that arises, which is, you know, funny, it's a funny story, is that when someone gets a nikah, but they have not yet done the walima, this is actually talked about in, in fiqh, right? That is the, the pre-walima phase of marriage. And there's really very little difference. They're very, it's, it's extremely like, basic and it's just one nuance that we don't have to talk about but essentially they're still married they're still a married couple meaning that all those privileges all those rights and responsibilities are many people that you may have heard of who have their nikah and then are waiting for their walima you guys ever heard of this okay like nikah we're nikah 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 comma d right we're nikah okay so all of this we are married but we don't live to, together for whatever reason yet okay and there's you know these stages that we're going to go through so one of the things traditionally that you find is that it's encouraged for these two people that as they're married, not living together, right, to not have any children, because that could be very difficult. Building a family when you don't live in the same house is a challenge, especially when you're uh, not able to even provide. So that's one of the things that's mentioned. And obviously what leads to children is also something that parents and you know, elders and stuff are like, be careful, don't do that, etc. So I was once in a gathering where there was this couple that had just gotten nikah. Okay, mashallah. It was awesome. I pray that if anyone here wants to get nikah, may Allah give you what's best, inshallah. Okay, so they just got their nikah done. It was, it was great. Everyone's happy. We're celebrating. You know, we're sitting down, having some nice dinner. And one of the aunties walks in the room and she's like, you know, Beta, I have some advice for you. So I'm like, okay. Not me, for them. So I'm listening. I'm like, you know the Michael Jackson? You know, they're always like eating popcorn. I'm like, so I'm just sitting there. I'm like, this is going to be good. So she says, you know, Beta, like, you know, I love you both so much and you're like, you're like my own children and I would only tell you this because I love you. And when someone starts like that, you know it's going to get really serious. <laughs> because if it's not serious, it's just very like vague. This is like, she's setting it up. She's like, you know, I, I, would, I would never tell you this unless you were like my, I'm like your mother, right? I'm like your mother. So I'm looking at the guy's eyes and he's just like waiting. <laughs> and the girl is just like kind of like already embarrassed. I think it was the girl's aunt. I think it was the girl's aunt and the guy was... Uh, uh, it was not the guy's aunt. So, although it could have been, honestly. Uh, 
need explanation, just ask her friend. So she says, you know, I know that you got your nikah, mashallah, and I know we're also happy for you, and blah, 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 blah. But don't spend time alone. And then they, everyone automatically, what do they do? They look right at me, they're like, huh? <laughs> and I'm like, I'm just like, and they're like, and she's like, no, no, no. Because, you know, you love each other, you have so much love in your heart for each other, but if you spend time alone, then shaitan might come. <laughs> and he might whisper to you to do things that you shouldn't do. So then, then they look at me, they're like, <laughs> like phone a friend. <laughs> and I, I look and I'm like, um, they're like, is that true? And I'm like, I look at the auntie and she's like, <laughs> she wants me to say yes. She's like, and I'm like, uh, I'm like, auntie, technically, that's not Shaytan. Uh, because whatever you're alluding to, and I don't want to go into details, whatever you're alluding to is not haram any longer. Right? Like, it would, it would have been haram pre-marriage, now it's not. So, Shaytan doesn't encourage people to do, like, permissible things. It's kind of not his MO, right? Like, you know, you're like, hey, uh, eat, drink that milk. And you're like, really, Shaytan? He's like, yeah, it's all right. Like, that's not what it, so I'm like, Shaytan's not going to show up and try to convince these two people to, like, do, so she's like, no, 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 no. I know, I know, I know, it's not haram. But still, Shaytan might come. And I'm like, what are you saying? Right? Uh, it just got really awkward. So... To Saad's point, right, again, the cultural expectation of pre-Shadi, pre-Walima, no time together, was being manipulated, right, through religious language. Instead of her saying, like, you guys don't want to, like, have a kid before you move in, which is a valid concern, okay? And I, I understand there's, like, birth control and whatnot, but the point being is that's what she said. She could have just said that and not use the religion to try to justify whatever her fear was. But... Again, when a person doesn't have knowledge, then it's kind of like the world is their playground. You know, they can justify or they can make impermissible or permissible anything based off of whatever their heart's feeling and then just throw like a little shaitan in there. You know, like, oh, shaitan will do this or Allah doesn't want this and Islam says this. And without knowledge on both sides, the person can say what they want and the other person doesn't know how to sort of take it. They don't know whether or not it's accurate or inaccurate. So knowledge is very important. Now, what Allah subhanahu wa is talking about here is a lot more important and critical than a nikah couple getting advice from Andi, right? He's saying that when these people, they're so distant from knowledge of Allah that they start to make claims about Allah, okay? They start to speak authoritatively about Allah. And this is, again, when you study the science of theology, aqidah, this is a really, really dangerous territory. Because no one wants to speak authoritatively about Allah without knowing anything, right? So it's best when a person doesn't know to just say, look, Allah knows best. That's really the safest answer. You know, if you were in my Sunday school and you wrote that on your exam, I would give you 100%. Because that is the safest answer. In 99% of situations, saying, I don't know, is fine. I told you guys a story about Imam Malik, who was a scholar of great repute, and, you know, a person comes and travels, asks him all these questions, and to half of them, he said, I don't know. Right? And this is somebody that definitely should know. And he's saying, la adri, la adri. Because it's way more important for a person not to get in trouble by their tongue than it is for them to appear to be correct. And if you feel the pressure to appear to be right, that's the best time to say no, that I don't know. If like you're feeling this pressure inside, like, okay, this person's waiting, they need an answer, that's probably the best time for a person to say, you know what? 
I really don't know exactly. Let me, let me go back. Let me ask some teachers or scholars that I know and I can get an answer for you. Because remember, when the Prophet Sallallahu was put in the same situation, right, through his lesson we learn that that pressure can sometimes lead you to make false promises or things that are not going to be delivered upon. So Allah Ta'ala says here, مَا لَهُمْ بِهِ مِنْ عِلْمٍ Neither did their forefathers had كَبُرَتْ كَلِمَةً تَخْرُجُ مِنْ أَفْوَاهِهِمْ إِنْ يَقُولُونَ إِلَّا كَذِبًا That what a horrible thing that was said or that was uttered from their, their mouths, their lips, they said nothing but that which was a lie. So this is again the importance of knowledge. Now, switching gears. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala changes the topic or the theme and he introduces to us again something very emotional, something very critical, and that is the emotional intelligence of the Prophet How would you guys describe the Prophet in one word? If you had one word, if someone came to you and said, tell me about your Prophet in one word, what would you say? Pacifist? Who said pacifist? You said pacifist? Okay, what else? Merciful, okay. Kind. Kind. Humble. Humble, beautiful. Honest, caring. caring. Compassionate. Compassionate. Understanding. Understanding, patient, I'm hearing. Trustworthy. Trustworthy and? Empathetic. Empathetic, very good, mashallah. Khadija, solid. There was a conference once, uh, back in the 90s, there was a Sila conference, and they asked all these scholars the same question. It was kind of like what I just did, but everyone in the crowd was like a PhD in Islam. I'm not trying to make you feel bad. You're very successful in your own right. But I want you to understand just like the caliber of, of, of a religious mind that was there. They asked everybody like, how would you describe the Prophet And everyone there was just like a sheikh, a sheikh of shiuch, like big time. And the, the, the characteristic, everything that you guys said to some degree or, or, or completely was true. Okay. But the characteristic that they landed on as a group of scholars, this was like an international conference, was empathy. His ability to emotionally connect with other people was unparalleled. Absolutely. To the point where when you read some of these stories or when you hear these stories, you can't help but think of your own shortcomings. Like the first thing you think of when you hear about how the Prophet treated people, especially those who treated him poorly, the first thing you think about is how you and I would never be able to do the same thing. And, and it's not a bad thought. Right? It's not the self-deprecation that, that I'm alluding to, but it's, the, it's just the sheer reverence of how perfect his character was. So what's something that he had that might, we might find difficult in our lives? Well, the Prophet had this incredible ability to feel for other people, even for those people that perpetually, consistently made mistakes and rejected him. So Allah here is talking about this moment. And he says, That Allah is addressing this pain that he's feeling. And he uses this, this description, this language, that you will kill yourself through your grief. Your grief will become so great that you'll just die. Over what? Not over the fact that you lost both of your parents before birth and even at a young age, not over the fact that your uncle died as a non-Muslim while you were sitting at his deathbed begging him to say shahada, not over the fact that your wife passed away, not over the fact that your children will pass away at a young age, not those, but you, one of the things that will cause you to have such heartbreak that you will feel tightness in your chest, you can't breathe, 
is that you're going to be sitting here talking to people and you're going to be trying to make sense to them of why this religious uh, uh, you know, scripture should be something that they read and be a part of and they're not going to listen to you at all. And it's not like how we are. If someone disagrees with you, what do you do? Very good. You just went, she went like this. Right? Yeah. That's exactly right. Like if someone disagrees with you, what do you do? You just shrug your shoulders. You're just like, I don't care. Right? And maybe that's a defense mechanism. Maybe it's you're masking your hurt. You know, like, I don't care, but you really do. And you're crying a little bit, right? I don't care. I don't care, right? But in reality, we have so many different reactions to when people don't agree with us. Right? So we might shrug it off. We might, you know, make excuses for them. We might say that, oh, well, they're not even intelligent enough to understand what I'm saying anyway, so, you know, ha-ha. We might, you know, lump them into a category of people that we don't like anyways. There's so many different responses to when people don't agree with us. How many of us, when people don't agree with us, right? So you have something you're very passionate about. I, this isn't talking about Islam over the water cooler at work with one of your coworkers. This is like a, a life or death thing. This is you trying to convince somebody of something that you hold very near and dear to your heart existentially. Okay, so something you really believe in. I had this conversation the other day with a rabbi friend of mine talking about the Palestinian cause. And I just could not get him to say the words that I was trying to get him to say. Right? He kept saying it was complicated. Maybe I wanted to, maybe I wanted to punch myself, right? It's really complicated. I was like, I'm going to make things complicated. You say it one more time. I'm going to make you complicated, right? Physically. He kept saying it was complicated. And I was like, surely we can agree that it is wrong to kill journalists or children or bomb hospitals or schools or anything else, all right? I'm gonna stop because I wanna go to Palestine later this year, but I just, you get my point. Surely we can just agree, like just say the word, just say yes, but everything had a pretext, everything. And you might have the same experience when you're talking about racism, right, in, 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 American, uh, in the American experience as a Muslim, or sexism, or you might, you might be trying to convince somebody of like a very, basic foundational fact and they're just not believing you they're not catching on they're not admitting it right now the prophet soul said that when he experienced this from the religious perspective it caused him so much grief and this is something that is a skill that really cannot be cannot be uh you know it it, it cannot be faked it's not something that you can just you know act oh man i wish this empathy is something that has to be felt sharpened, honed. And let me tell you something. The job of the Prophet was to deliver the message to all people. The job of the Prophet was to have compassion and mercy for everybody. The job of the Prophet was to try to be there for everybody. Yes? Okay? Does that sound pretty good? Yeah. Would the world be a good place if everybody had mercy for each other? Compassion? Have you failed in that regard? Yes or no? Anybody? We all stop nodding at once. <laughs> people here don't like to admit failure. Yeah, for sure. Have you been mean to people before? Have you been hurt? Maybe rightfully so. Maybe they hurt you and you responded in kind. But the prophetic response, the prophetic response is that when somebody does something that goes against what you are hoping for, whether it's in conversation or in action behavior, is to have empathy for that person. And it's a really tough place to get to. That's like the height it's the height. Imagine somebody saying something so mean, hurting you so badly, and instead of responding with anger, the thought you have is, I wonder what it is. 
in that person's life or heart that's allowing them to feel that way. This was who the Prophet was. People would literally tell him, I want you to die. I want you this, I want you that. You're, a, you're, a, you're crazy, you're this, you're that. And the Prophet would come back and meet them the next day. How can I help you? How can I? And they're like, get away, get away. They would laugh at him, mock him. Only later, years, sometimes months, or maybe years later, to be shaking his hand saying, I believe you're the messenger of God. There's no way that the conversion of so many of those companions would have happened if he responded the way that you and I respond to people. There's simply no way. One of the proofs of prophethood, if you want to, like, if people want to say, well, what do you know? How are you sure that the prophet Muhammad was a prophet? One of the proofs of prophethood is his character. It's simply beyond human capability. When you read these stories, and they're all vetted. I mean, these are his enemies telling the stories. They're not even all of them his companions. Some of them are like, yeah, I just became Muslim. Let me tell you what happened. This, 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 this. But he never said this to me, or he never did this to me. He always made me feel this way. Again, it's, it's beyond capacity. So Allah Ta'ala here is describing it. But Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala here is drawing a line. And he's saying that as much as you have this capacity for empathy and for emotion to connect, he said that when a person rejects or denies, you can only let it bother you to a certain degree. You cannot let it consume you. If something does not go the way you want it to in your life, you're allowed to feel disappointment. You're allowed to feel pain. You're allowed to feel, you know, you're allowed to experience the depression that you experience or the anxiety you experience. We're all allowed that. But there is a limit. There is a point at which Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala informs us and tells us that we're not supposed to lose our lives over the disappointment that we feel, even if it's the disappointment of the Prophet ﷺ trying to convert people or accept people or bring people to Islam. An example of this, if, if you get into a fight with somebody, how long do you have before you have to talk to them again? Everyone knows this, it means we all have parents. Okay. How long can people be quiet with you for? Three days. All right, so generally the, the, the hadith says, uh, uh, the hadith says it is not permissible for a person to make hijra, which is the a metaphorical term for what? Go somebody, right? To migrate away from somebody. Literally is what it means. To, to migrate. Okay? You can't go somebody for more than three days. After that, you have to at least respond with salam. And then you can do another three days. <laughs> Okay? So you can reset every three days with a salam. That's really bad. I shouldn't, I shouldn't teach you that. Okay, so, the scholars say that's the minimum. Okay, so, the point being is what does that, what does that teach us? Couldn't the Prophet have just told us, hey, suck it up. If somebody hurts your feelings, be nice. Be like me. Right? What, what, is, what expectation does that set? If the Prophet says, if someone's mean to you, hurts your feelings, makes you upset, makes you angry, you better, not be go, you better not go quiet on them. You better treat them exactly as normal. What expectation does that create? Huh? It's unrealistic. It's unrealistic. Very good. It's unrealistic. Like, you would look and be like, yeah, so Allah, I'm a human. I'm not an angel. I feel the things that I'm feeling. When the person said that, it creates, like, it makes me upset. I feel like, angry, like I feel hot inside, my eyes are twitching, like I'm having a physical response to what they said. I can't just 
ignore it, Ya Rasulullah. Right? So the Prophet is saying, okay, you get three days. Because the other side of it is, you can ignore them for as long as you need. Take care of yourself. Treat yourself. Love yourself, right? What if the Prophet said, you know what? You know what? You get an unlimited amount of time. You know what? If that person's bad for you, just cut them out. If that person said something mean, just cut them. Just cut them. Not physically, just cut them. <laughs> what expectation does that create? What does that do to us? No one is friends with anybody anymore. Right? How many friends do you have in your circle that you once kind of had something, an issue with? Yeah, it happens. And then you have to repair. You have to rebuild. And when you repair and rebuild, it's like my orthopedic surgeon said when I had ACL surgery. I asked him, I said, doctor, can I play, can I ever play sports again? And he said, why? I said, I'm going to go to the league, inshallah, right? <laughs> and after he got done laughing, he looked at me. And he said, he goes, you know what's crazy about the surgery that I'm going to do? I said, what? He goes, you are going to be stronger in that leg than you were before you tore it. So how does that make sense? He goes, sometimes the way that we repair something, artificially we put in different things, and he goes, it actually makes that leg stronger. So he said, typically what ends up happening is people come back tearing the other leg. And I was like, thanks, right? Thanks for putting that right there, all right? Point being is that sometimes through repair and, and, and renovation, things become better. So you go through something with a friend, right? There's a, there's a time where you're hurt, you don't feel good about it, it makes you feel uneasy, you kind of, you know, and then you come to terms with it, you kind of address one another, and it's awkward, but you, you, you put everything out on the table, you say what needs to be said, right? They respond, you talk it out, it's awkward for a few days, and then things kind of start to pick up again, and your relationship, because both of you had transcended that difficult moment, your relationship becomes better. It happens with parents, it happens with spouses, it happens with friends, it happens a lot, right? And this is the prophetic wisdom, that you are allowed to feel what humans feel. You are allowed to. Sadness, happiness, excitement, anger, grief, all of that's mubah, permissible. But you cannot let it take over who you are. You cannot. The Prophet Sallallahu said what? When the, when the companion The Prophet said, don't get angry. Right? That's just an interesting thing to say. Don't get angry. Well, the scholars say, what did the Prophet mean by this? Because surely it's possible for people to get angry. I mean, it's impossible for someone not to get angry about something. The scholars say what the Prophet told him was not don't ever feel anger, but do not become a manifestation of your anger. Do not become so grumpy, so upset, so discontent all the time that when people think of you, they think of anger. That's not allowed, right? Many of us think to your own life, there are people, for better or for worse, that when you think of them, you think of a trait, right? So when you think of them, you think of generosity, you think of hospitality, you think of mercy, forgiveness, love. Then there are those, may Allah protect us, that when we are thought of, people think of stinginess, backbiting, lack of trust, anger, deceit, procrastination, we're not reliable, right? No one wants to have that. So while you're allowed to experience your human self, don't let it become who you are. May Allah Ta'ala protect us. Okay, then Allah Ta'ala switches again, <coughs> kind of alluding to why the people may not follow. What does Allah Ta'ala say? Verse number seven, who can read the English? Right here. Ooh. 
in green. That's like a TED talk. Go ahead. Anybody from the five people that are sitting as close to the TV as possible? Nice Go ahead. We have indeed made whatever is on earth as an adornment for it in order to test which of them is best indeed. And now this one, the next one. And we will certainly reduce whatever is on it to barren ground. This is amazing, subhanAllah. This is like one of my, I mean, this is one of my favorite little couplets in the Quran. Allah Ta'ala says, Inna ja'alna we talked about this very briefly at the end last time, so I want to bring it up quickly. Allah Ta'ala here is talking about tests, tests in life. We always hear about tests. Why does God test me? Right? This is just a test. But the interesting thing is that if you read the verse backwards, you would assume that Allah's power ta'ala is going to bring up what? Something good or bad in your life. Bad. Because we always associate tests with tragedies, or calamities, or trials. We never associate that trial as being something that we wanted, something favorable. So Allah here is saying, no, not everything that's a test is something that you don't like. In fact, some of the greatest tests that we experience are the things that we want. Like we want that, Allah gives it to us, and it fundamentally changes our spiritual makeup, who we are. If it makes us someone better, or we stay the same, then the test was passed. But if it makes us worse, meaning if we develop some sort of spiritual disease because of that, let's say that Allah Ta'ala gives somebody wealth, and as a result they become arrogant, okay? Then is that wealth really a blessing? Is it a blessing that it, it turned that person from being otherwise very normal and agreeable and socially you know, beneficial to others? Now, whenever that person looks at others, the first thing they look at is the brand of clothing that they wear, or the car that they drive, or the neighborhood that they live in. Those are things that that person didn't care about until they attained or achieved that level of wealth. So the person thinks that Allah favored them and gave them, right? But in reality, that person is being tested and is failing that test. May Allah protect us. So Allah Ta'ala gives people things, right? Degrees, education spouses, children. And as a result of these gifts, sometimes we turn into like a monster. Allah gives you money and all of a sudden you look at everybody else that's struggling financially and you're like, they're just not working hard. What does that mean? What does that mean, subhanAllah, that they're just not working hard? You think people enjoy being in difficult situations financially? You think it's easy? You think it's like, no. But the reason why a person loses that empathy is because they've been blessed immensely. I like to think of this word, uh, uh, instead of uh, being blessed, I think of, I say being blessed, because it's like being tested with a blessing, <laughs> right? And, and subhanAllah, man, you have to really, you have to be careful, because people, the way that we talk about things that society wants for us, is almost absolutely definitively that it's good. You know what I'm talking, you know what I mean? Like something good happens to you, and people say, mashallah. You know, you get your degree, or you get a job, or you get this or that, and people start celebrating. Wow, that's amazing. And all, there's a bunch of hype coming through. And, and in your mind, like when you start to believe the hype, you start to forget that, you know what, like I better be careful. Because the thing that Allah has given me, everything that is given comes with a responsibility, yes or no? Everything that is given comes with a responsibility. And everything that is given 
Allah will ask about. Every single thing. That's why we believe as Muslims, the first people to enter paradise will be the poor. Not because, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why, but not because everybody who's poor is necessarily automatically better than anyone who has wealth or riches or what. No, but because they have less to answer about. The person who has more money, right, you look at people across the world with such a, a you know, pity. Oh, subhanAllah, like, look at how poor the ummah is. Look at how poor the rest of the world is. You know the companions, they used to cry when they got wealth. Don't take this too seriously, but I want you to have it just when you need it. Don't live this statement every day because it could, it could hurt. But I want you to have it just when you need it. Abdurrahman bin Auf, when Musa'ab bin Umair died in the Battle of Uhud, when he was martyred in the Battle of Uhud, Musa'ab was the equivalent of like someone who grew up in Hollywood. Okay? When he was in Mecca, he was so wealthy, he was so famous, so well taken care of, that he was, everyone wanted to be Musa'ab. Okay? In terms of his fashion, his you know, hygiene, his pedigree, he was like, the, everyone was jealous of him. When he, when they described him in Mecca, they said that he had so much cloth. You know, cloth is expensive. If you guys have ever gotten clothes like made, like tailored, they measure by the yard, right? So, or so I hear. Okay. So, no, but anyways, it's cheaper sometimes. So, he had so much cloth that that when he walked in Mecca as a young person, as a wealthy young man, his clothes would drag behind him for like yards and yards and yards. Now for you and I, we're like, that doesn't seem very productive. <laughs> Sounds like a waste. Exactly. It is a waste. Because you know what? He had another garment to wear the next day, and the next day, and the next day, and the next day. He was so wealthy, he didn't have to wear the same garment twice. I remember actually, subhanAllah, one of the, uh, I was watching one of the uh, documentaries or biographies on one of the NBA players, I forget who it was, and they said they never wore the same pair of socks twice, ever. And I thought to myself, me either, but that's because my dryer keeps eating one of them. <laughs> and so I constantly have to buy new ones, right? Not because I'm wealthy, in fact, I've got to start a GoFundMe for my sock. No, no, but this guy literally, and then they had, he was on an away game, and you know, they went to his hotel room and they, the camera was following him and you see this bag, this Foot Locker bag. This is how you know it was old because it wasn't Amazon. Foot Locker bag and in the bag was just like brand new three or four packs of these Nike socks. And he says, I get hundreds and hundreds of packs of these socks every season. And I never wear the same socks twice. And I remember, again, this isn't me judging. I'm not like, wow, what a sinner. But what I'm saying is, it's a sign of opulence, isn't it? It's a sign of wealth. Right? They used to say the same thing about other athletes, that they would never wear the same shoes twice or whatever. Okay? The point being is that that was Musab. He had so much wealth that he wouldn't wear the same garment twice. He could drag his clothes. He had so much, he could drag it behind him. Fast forward now, two decades, decade and a half, when Musab is fighting in the Battle of Uhr. And he sees that the Prophet is vulnerable, that the attack is too front now, and he sees that the Prophet is, is basically they've identified him, the army is close to him, and they're coming to him with their swords. And they've, they've, they've struck him over the head, with the, you know, they've hit him on the helmet. The Prophet is not looking good. His area is not looking good. Musa'ad, one thing that was interesting, I don't know if people know this, they say that apart from the family of the Prophet, he looked like him the most. That he looked like him the most. 
So if people like looked quickly and they didn't know what the Prophet looked like exactly, they would, they would think they were like brothers, right? Even though obviously we know that that's not the case with the Prophet. But the point being is that they look similar. So Mus'ad, when he sees that the Prophet is being attacked, he picks up the flag, the liwa, and he rides his horse towards that area, and then he peels away. And what happens is you have these hundreds of soldiers rushing toward the area to attack the Prophet, and they see Mus'ab and they think, what? That's him. Because you can't communicate that quickly. So some of them are going to the actual place, and then some say, oh, he's getting away. So they start chasing him. And as a result of that, he's being chased by hundreds of soldiers. This isn't a video game. This isn't some area where it's like, he can get out of this. When he's doing this, he knows this means his end. He's fully aware. And he gets cut and hit by sword after sword after sword until his life eventually ends. When they came after the battle, and that action single-handedly saved the Prophet's life, amongst many, there were many actions that day of bravery that saved the Prophet's life. That was one of them. The scholars say that had Musab not done that, who knows what could have happened. When they came to his body, the companions, they tried to cover his body with what he was wearing as a sign of respect for the recently de- deceased. And they, so they, they straightened out what he was wearing as a piece of cloth, and they covered his head, but they noticed that when they covered his head, his feet would show. So then some of the companions went to his feet and they pulled the cloth down to cover his feet. And when they did that, they noticed that the cloth would expose his face. And they did this one or two times until they realized that this wasn't some sort of error where the cloth was not folded or folded. They said, he doesn't have enough cloth. He doesn't have enough cloth. And they started crying. Not because they were sad that he died. That was a different kind of sadness. They were crying because... In all of their minds, 10 years prior, they remembered the young man walking in the streets of Mecca with more cloth than he needed. And now (laughs) he laid there, lifeless in the battlefield, with not enough cloth to cover his body. And Abdurrahman bin Awf, who was also very wealthy, when the the death of Mus'ab was reported to him in Medina, he started crying and he said, I'm so afraid. Look at his trajectory. Many of us would say what? Oh man, he went from wealth to poverty. Abu Rahman said, look at where he went from. He went from who he was, and his trajectory was not downward, it was up. Allah gave him his reward. And Abu Rahman said, I hope, I hope that my wealth here with me is not a sign that Allah is giving me everything now and saying nothing will come to you in the next life. Why am I telling you this story? Again, if you think about it too hard, it can kind of mess with you. If Allah gives you something nice in this life, It's not a sign that Allah is upset with you. It's not a sign that you're in a bad spot. No, if you get a nice house or a car or a job, it's not bad. But what it does to you is a sign of who you are. You know, they say that wealth doesn't change you, it just shows you who you really are, right? This is what the companions were worried about. They didn't want their wealth to distract them. The Quran says what? You were distracted by your obsession with acquiring more. Al-Hakum al-Takathur. Al-Takathur means what? To get more, 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 more. Allah is saying, all of you are so focused on acquiring more, you're, you're going to live your life getting more, more, more. Hatta zultum al-Maqadir. 
it's like you're going to constantly be getting more and more and more until you just fall into your grave and you're dead. Without any time to thank Allah for what he's given you, to look up and enjoy the day, right? To smile in the face of your mother or father, your spouse, to hug your children, whatever. Like, spend time with your friend. You're just so constantly focused on getting more and more. So Allah Ta'ala here says what? All of this desire that you have for more, it is not simply without value. It's not just a random thing. It's a test. And then he says, this very thing that you chase constantly, nonstop, one day, this earth that you see, you look out and you see like the beauty of you know the landscape and the architecture. Today I was uh, at, at somewhere, uh, I was buying some stuff and I heard, overheard this conversation and someone goes, where do you live? And the, and the lady goes, I live at Legacy West. And she paused for applause. <laughs> <laughs> She's like, I live in Legacy West. And she looked around, right? And everyone's like, oh, wow. Right? And they start talking about, oh, you got the good restaurants and this and that. It's great, you know? You tell people where you live. Where do you live? You know, oh, do you live in Carrollton? No, I live in uh, Castle Hills. <laughs> you live in Irving? No, no, no. Valley Ranch. <laughs> Jeez. Let's not be ridiculous, right? Plano? No, Frisco. Plano is 1990. Come on. <laughs> What are you talking about? Now it's Saxe, Prosper, eventually it's Oklahoma, right? DFW will eventually just be Tulsa. Like, people say, I live in DFW. Where do you live? Tulsa. How long do you get the roots? Four hours, right? <laughs> but it's still DFW. Right, okay. I'm not, I'm not bitter. So, the point being is that we have all these badges that we wear based on these things. Now, Allah says, these things one day will all disappear. And that's why Hajj is like the great rehearsal for the Day of Judgment. Because overnight, when everyone gets into Ihram, you know what happens? When everyone gets into Ihram, and everyone steps out of their hotels, and they take their bus to, to Mina or Muzdalifah or wherever they're going, the next stage, you know what's crazy about Hajj? You can't tell the millionaire from the person who's unemployed. You can't tell the student who just graduated from the person who's got a trust fund, right, for all of their kids. You can't tell. You look at the crowd and you're like, right? Because guess what? Like even the people who groom themselves, night can't you can't groom for a few days. They all start looking a little bit shaggy, right? And everybody kind of starts and they and they're dusty and disheveled and it's it's difficult. Why? Because these are all the signs of a person begging a lot. Like if you really needed something, would you take time to like line yourself up? No, you'd be like, Allah, please, right? So the idea for a person who's in the ihram, for the hijaj, is like, oh Allah, I've come here. Labbaik Allahumma labbaik. I've come here, ya Allah. I didn't even, I didn't even pack like my, my nice stuff. I got on the next flight. I got out here. I came. I'm in the middle of the desert. I'm wearing nothing but simple clothing. I'm not even wearing my jewelry. I don't know what time it is. My watch isn't working. My phone's up. Oh Allah, I'm just here to beg you for your jannah. That's it. Right? That's the power of Hajj. And so on that day, the Day of Judgment, when everything is raised to the ground, right? Everything is destroyed. You think we're all going to care who got the, the Model X or the, you know, you think everyone's going to care like, about who lived in what zip code? You think people in Irving are going to look at people in Valley Ranch and be like, lucky, right? <laughs> no. No. No one will care. 
And, and we, we, we thrive, we live, we're marketed to, we are convinced that you are better because of something. Platinum status, VIP. What's the support thing called again? That was a test. See, all of you know what I'm talking about. Everyone knows what I'm talking about. VIP thing, right? Everyone gets all this stuff all the time, right? Is that, okay? We're, we're convinced. We are convinced that we are somehow more special. Even right now, I'm not trying to shame people. Who's playing tonight? What teams? Celtics in the Heat, right? Okay, last night was the, 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 the uh, you know, the Mavs and the uh, Warriors. It was painful. I can't even remember it, right? I'm not a Mavs fan, but it just hurts. I have so many friends who are Mavs fans. Uh, and I, I had a bunch of friends, mashallah, they're like, yeah, you know, I got playoff tickets. How? Well, I'm, I'm a season ticket holder, so, you know, season tickets. You know what that means? It's not seasoning. It's season tickets means that I get tickets for every game. You want to come next year? Let me know, inshallah, right? I'll get up. And I'm like, yeah, that's fine. I'll watch it on TV, right? Uh, I don't like $20 nachos anyways, as I'm sitting there jealous. No, I'm joking. We are convinced that we are different because of some category that was artificially made. Allah Ta'ala says on the Day of Judgment, there will be no categories. There will only be two. Those are the book on the right hand, and those are the book on the left. That's it. And guess what? There's no attachment to socioeconomic status. There's no attachment to what car you drove, what zip code you had. There's nothing. The entire earth will be flat. Destroyed. You won't be able to tell one part from the next. أَمْ حَسِبَتَ أَنَّ أَصْحَابَ الْكَفْبِ وَالْرَقِيمِ كَانُوا مِنْ آيَاتِنَا عَجَبًا Allah Ta'ala now begins the story. We have a few minutes left, so I'll get started. Allah Ta'ala says, O Messenger, Ya Rasulullah, have you heard of, have you thought, that the story of the people in the cave, وَالْرَقِيمِ, which means like the tablet or the plaque, because there was a, uh, there was a, a there's a, a narration or a legend that says that their names were inscribed on a plaque. So this is kind of like their title. We're wonders of our sign. That remember when those young people, specifically Fitya, when those young people took refuge, ran into the cave and said, Oh, our Lord, grant us mercy from yourself and guide us correctly, rightly, through the situation that we are in. What's the story? Who are the people of the cave? The people of the cave are a group of young men that existed in ancient times. Okay, this is like pre-prophetic times. And their society was one that was immersed and steeped in immorality. Multiple levels, right? Immorality in, in terms of virtue and ethics, but also, of course, there was a disconnect from like Abrahamic faith tradition. They were no longer believing in one God. There was like idol worshiping, people taking advantage of each other spiritually, etc., etc. So there was an entire society that was like Gotham City, okay, but in the desert. And these young people, in them, lived this candle of consciousness, like they were not taken by the distraction they had something that stood out. And so, what they did was, every year, in this society, in this culture, there were uh, festivals, and there were parties and gatherings, um, in which all these kinds of like immoralities would take place, right? The idols would be worshipped there, and all kinds of partying type things, drinking, whatever would happen. During this time, these young people 
they took it upon themselves to not engage and not participate in this kind of behavior. This was something that they decided to do. Now, what's interesting is that in the beginning, many of them just kind of stayed internally separate from it. They didn't participate in it, but they just kind of separated from the gathering itself. But the first thing that we hear about in some of these narrations is that it wasn't a group of them at once. In fact, some of the Israeliyat, they tell us that it was one person. It was a single person, right? That when they saw all this happening, they became so concerned about the health of their faith that they stepped away. And instead of participating in the carnival or the festival or whatever, they went and they just found a tree and they sat under the tree by themselves. And then after that, another person who had that same quality of consciousness, they looked over consciousness, they looked and they looked at the guy sitting on the tree and they walked over and they said, what are you doing here? And the person said, nothing, I'm just relaxing, just taking a rest. Because it was actually a crime not to participate in this festival. And so the second person looks at the first guy and he says, are, are, you, are you also uncomfortable? Do you, do you also not want to be here? And the first guy goes, yeah, this is bad. Like, I don't want to be here at all. So the second person sits there. And then there's a third guy in the party, he looks and he sees these two guys. And he's like, what's going on, right? So he's a party, let me go. So he walks over and he says, what are you guys doing here? They're like, nothing, nothing, nothing at all. Just taking a break from the dancing. Because again, they don't want to get busted. And the third guy goes, yeah, yeah, me too. I just want to rest from that dancing, right? He sits down and he goes, dancing's around, right? They go, yeah. <laughs> this isn't accurate, this is a summary. He goes, we don't want to be here, right? You go, yeah, we don't want to be here. And eventually the group grows in this manner. One, two, three, four. So many lessons, subhanAllah. We're not going to have time until next week to get to them. We don't have, we don't have hardware next week because of uh, Morley, but the week after, inshallah. Right? Number one, Allah describes them not as people. He describes them as young people. Very interesting. When Allah talks about their virtue, the first characteristic that's praiseworthy about them is that they're young. Like we have a baby chanting Allah back there. Right? <laughs> the youngest amongst us. Most pious, mashallah. Okay? Why is it important that they're young? Why is that something that Allah... Because remember, the Quran is not accidental. It's not like when you and I talk and something slips out. This is all strategic. This is by design. Why would Allah mention the first thing when He describes them? He says, Remember when those young people took to Al-Kahf. They then took refuge. Before you even talk about what they did, he says they're young. Why? Because yeah. younger people have like, more difficulty controlling their desires. Okay. Younger people have more difficulty controlling their desires or, in general, more desires are presented to them. Right? Like, more opportunities are presented to them. And you know that, like, as you get older, like, they're like you want to go out? You're like, I'm tired. <laughs> By go out, you mean, like, out of my house? No. <laughs> So as you get older, like halal, the halal life chooses you, truly, right? Like as you get older, you're just kind of like, okay, like, you know what I mean? Haram becomes harder. It's one of the mercies of Allah, honestly. If you had the energy to do all the haram you do when you're older, when you're younger, like it'd be tough, right? When you're younger, you're like, yeah, I'll go, you know, and you make bad decisions. And again, a lot of it comes from this youthful exuberance, this energy, this convincing, self-convincing. When you're older, you're like, I'm just going to stay in. Let me keep, let me see if I can keep wudu for a couple hours. That's exciting. <laughs> and I'll see if I can pray. 
I'm usually tonight I'll pray Isha before I fall asleep, or if I'm gonna wake up in the middle of the night, startled, all right, wondering what that is, wake up, jump up, make a and pray Isha, and then try to fall asleep for the next two hours. When you're young, the decisions you make about morality in general are a lot more considerable to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala because there's a lot more opportunity. What else? We had other hands? Why young? Yeah. Um, like, I guess maybe they may not have the wisdom that, like, the youth may not have the wisdom that the older. Yeah. Interesting. It's harder for young people to make the right decision because we don't have wisdom. Wisdom is just experience turned into knowledge. So when a person does the right thing, wisdom is forming. When a person does the wrong thing, wisdom is forming. And then after you've committed enough mistakes or done enough right things, like you start to acquire this new thing called wisdom. It's no longer just knowledge. Now it's like, oh, now I know why I shouldn't run late to this thing. I can run late to that, but I can't run late to the passport office or to my flight. Because running late to those things is not like running late to class. In class, they still let me in. I can still get away with it. Right? For my flight, it's a big hassle. Okay, so now I'm learning. Now you're wise. And then you bump into like that first time traveler. Not first time. First time they're still scared. Second time. Or somebody who just doesn't have that wisdom and you're like, trust me. You don't want to make this mistake. Right? So you're right. Young people, because of their lack of experience, don't have that substance of wisdom. Hikmah. That older people tend to have because they've been through more. The other reason why being young here is so notable, and we'll finish with this is because when a young person chooses to do the right thing, despite having an opportunity to do anything, it is the ultimate sign of gratitude within the heart of that person. If you can do anything and you choose to do what Allah loves, it is one of the greatest manifestations of shukr to Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. Because you could literally have utilized the time He gave you the health he gave you, the wealth he gave you, anything. You could have utilized it for something else. And you decided that, oh Allah, you gave me this. And even though I could do this as a, as a means of gratitude to you, Allah, I'm not going to dare even think about using this in a way that I know that you're not going to be pleased with. And that's going to change your entire perspective. So gratitude is achieved by young people with their actions more than their words. If you want to know if you're grateful to Allah, you don't have to check how much dhikr you make every day. You have to see how much dhikr you live every day. Like, do I make the right choice? Am I grateful for my health? Then I'll stop to pray. Am I grateful for my wealth? Then I'll give charity. Am I grateful for my family? Then I'll, I'll keep the ties of kinship. I'm not going to make calling, you know those memes and those TikToks that talk about when your in-laws or whatever your overseas relatives call, and you like fake death, or like run away. I know we all laugh because we've been there, but think about how diametrically opposite that is to the tradition. Think about that. In Islam, we're taught to keep the family ties. One of the things that Khadija has said to the Prophet when he first received revelation, showing him that she knew he was special to God, was she said, in a world where nobody cares about their family, you're good to your family. Being good to your family is like a divine gift. Not everybody has it. But Allah tells us, the Prophet tells us, that, divine, or, uh, that family ties 
are a way that we can show gratitude for those that he's given us in our life. Right? So everyone talks about how much they love their grandparents when it's fashionable. Right? Or their cousins or uncles and aunts when it's fashionable. Or everyone posts on Mother's Day or Father's Day. But what about like the phone calls in between? Or the gifts in between or the text messages in between? You know, let me tell you something that's really, really important. If your relatives start to thank you because you called them, there's a problem. You know what I mean? If you call your cousins or something, or your aunt and uncle, or text, and they're like, thanks. I really appreciate it. Like, thanks for reaching out. Not being sarcastic, like, thanks. But like, genuinely, if your grandma or grandpa is like, I really appreciate that you called, it might mean that there's not enough communication. Right? So whatever you have left in your life, in terms of relationships, like I don't have any grandparents left anymore, may Allah have mercy on them. Right? Whatever relationships you have, don't make it the burden that we oftentimes joke about it being. It's not. It's an access point. It's an access point to Allah. That's very, very unique and very rare. We'll stop here, inshallah. We'll go ahead and conclude. May Allah Ta'ala give us all the good that we've talked about this evening. May Allah Ta'ala allow us to become people of Qur'an. May He allow us to become people that we have the empathy of the Prophet Sallallahu in our lives, that we're able to understand uh, you know, the value of this life not being in brands or you know, wealth or any sort of acquisition, but the value of this life is our closeness to Him. May Allah Ta'ala allow us to have the consciousness of spirituality and of faith even in our youth, that we are not distracted by the opportunities around us, but rather we're focused on pleasing Allah Subhanahu wa Ta'ala. Subhanakallahu bihamdik, ashadu an la ilaha illa ant nastalkuruka wa natubu ilayk. Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi Just a reminder to everybody, um, we don't have a session next Monday, inshallah, just because uh, there's a lot of traveling happening because of the Memorial Day, uh, the holiday weekend. Uh, but we will be resuming, inshallah, the following Monday. So the first Monday of June, inshallah. Okay? Assalamu alaikum warahmatullahi wabarakatuh.